0: John tonight Um, Isaiah 55 verse 1 is anyone thirsty come and drink even if you have no money John chapter 4 Jesus tired from the long walk sat wearily beside Jacob's well about noontime soon a Samaritan woman came to draw water and Jesus said to her please give me a drink the woman was surprised for Jews refused to have anything to do with Samaritans She said to Jesus, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking me for a drink? Jesus replied, If only you knew the gift God has for you, and who you are speaking to, you would ask me, and I would give you living water. But sir, you don't have a rope or a bucket, she said, and this well is very deep. Where would you get this living water? Jesus replied, Anyone who drinks this water will soon become thirsty, again. But those who drink the water I give will never be thirsty again. It becomes a fresh, bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. Please, sir, the woman said, give me this water. Then I'll never be thirsty again, and I won't have to come here to get water. Go and get your husband, Jesus told her. I don't have a husband, she replied. Jesus said, you're right, you don't have a husband. For you have had five husbands, and you aren't even married to the man you're living with now. You certainly speak the truth. Sir, the woman said, you must be a prophet. So tell me, why is it that you, Jews, insist that Jerusalem is the only place of worship, while we Samaritans claim it is here at Mount Gerizim, where our ancestors worshipped? Jesus replied, dear woman, the time is coming when it will no longer matter whether you worship the Father on this mountain or in Jerusalem. You Samaritans know very well about the one you worship. You Samaritans know very little about the one you worship. Well, we Jews know all about him, for salvation comes through the Jews. But the time is coming indeed. It's here now where true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The Father is looking for those who will worship him that way. For God is the spirit, so those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know the Messiah is coming, the one who is called Christ. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus told her, I am the Messiah. And then his disciples came back. They were shocked to find him talking to a woman, but none of them had the nerve to ask, what do you want with her, or why were you talking to her? The woman left her water jar beside the well and ran back to the village, telling everyone, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could he possibly be the Messiah? So the people came streaming from the village to see him. Many Samaritans from the village believed in Jesus because the woman had said, he told me everything I ever did. When they came out to see him, they begged him to stay in their village. So he stayed for two days long enough for many more to hear his message and believe. And they said to the woman, Now we believe, not just because of what you told us, but because we have heard him ourselves. Now we know that he is indeed the Savior of the world. This is the word of the Lord.
1: When you hear somebody else's story, it doesn't just give you a deeper glimpse into their world gives you a deeper glimpse into your world. When somebody else shares their experience with you, it makes sense of your experiences too. That's the power of getting to peer over somebody's shoulder into their life. Uh, During my seminary years, uh, Tuck Bartholomew was my pastor. Stacy is his better half, and Tuck and Stacy's house was kind of open all the time. So I had dinner over there a lot, and in retrospect, I got way more out of hearing Tuck and Stacy tell their dating stories, the early days, the mistakes here at UGA when they were here, the lessons learned. I got way more out of hearing them tell their stories than I ever did scheduling a lunch with Tuck, hearing his dating advice. Over the years, this is honest, I think I've gleaned way more hearing. Other Christians share specific stories of how Jesus met them in their suffering, even if it's stuff that I didn't struggle with. I got way more hearing them talk about how God showed up in their suffering than I ever did in all my training and all the books that I've read about that stuff. That's the power of getting to peer over somebody else's story into their life, especially if the person whose shoulder you're peering over is looking directly at Jesus. When you get a glimpse into their world, you get a glimpse into your world. That's been my prayer coming up towards tonight is that as you look over our friend's shoulder, as I look over her shoulder, you'd know you better and you'd know Jesus better. So about this woman, when we meet her, it's the lowest point of her life. She is, by this point, five divorces in six men in. We don't know how exactly that happened. We don't know how she got there, but it can't be anything but a heartbreaking story. How does anybody get to that point in their life without it devastating them? So we don't know the specifics of how she got five divorces in and six men in at whatever age she is, but we know at a basic level she got to the lowest point in her life the same way I get to the lowest points in my life and you got to the lowest points in your life. She worshiped her way there. Remember week one? The f- some of the first words we said as we opened up Isaiah and started looking at these gods that cannot save is that everybody worships. Everyone who's ever lived is a worshiper. And we said we're either worshiping our way to ruin or to restoration. We're attractional creatures. We're all driven by something way bigger than ourselves. Idols, which will drive us to our ruin, or the true and living God, which will bring us to restoration. So she has worshiped her way to ruin, and that's where we find her. So just to kind of pull some of those loose strings back together, there's some good thing that her heart has fanned into a God thing. She's looking at for something to be living water like we talked about last week to quench that divine thirst that restless heart she's she's looking for some restless some parking space for a restless anxious heart that's going to bring peace to that heart so what is it that has lured her with gospel promises like we talked about last week what is saying to her i am an ever-present help in times of trouble What is saying to her, your heart and your flesh and your marriage may fail, but I am your portion forever? What is saying to her, my yoke is easy and my burden is light, come to me in your weariness? What is is it that's saying that to her? Well, those questions, um, I don't know, they might help you or make sense, but they're not specific and concrete enough. If you were her friend and you asked her that stuff, it would go about as well as if your friend asked you that stuff to help you diagnose and understand, what, what idols are at play in my heart? What are they... How are they operating in my life? I think someone would ask you those questions and we would just sit there like, I don't know. But if we get a little bit more specific, a little bit more concrete with some diagnostic questions, if you were her friend, you could ask her some of these. I know this is a lot on the screen, but I put it here because if you want to take a picture, you 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 can take it and think about it for yourself. But you could ask her, you could ask yourself diagnostic questions. For example... Where in your life do you have a scarcity mindset? Objectively speaking, you already have the thing that you want and love, but it never feels like enough. There is money in the account, tuition's paid, but you still have financial insecurity all the time. You just feel like it's not enough. You already have a friend group, never feels like enough. Where do you have a scarcity mindset? You have some clarity, but it's not enough to feel comfortable. What are your strongest emotional outbursts usually related to when you kind of zoom out and look at the the trends, the patterns, the strong emotions, the anger, the despair, the hopelessness, the best days of your life and the worst days of your life? What causes that and what do those things have in common? Where are you often willing to disobey God, blur boundaries, and make compromises to get what you want? Um, We all do that. The places we we drive past boundaries, the places we make compromises, the places we sin are usually the places where we just don't care because there's something more beautiful that's pulling me over there and I'd rather have this than worry about that. Where do you get most defensive when you're challenged? Uh, Your political views, your campus ministry, if people talk, maybe you love RUF, people talk bad about it, Boy, do you get defensive fast. To what do you say, or to what do I say, I was made for you, and my heart is restless until it finds its rest in you? What would leave you feeling doomed, or terrified, or worthless if you didn't get it? Is it clarity or certainty? That's a nightmare. What would leave you feeling worthless if you didn't get it? Girlfriend or a boyfriend by graduation? A job offer by March? You're graduating in three months? What would leave you terrified, worthless, or doomed? What do you build your daily schedule around to get or to avoid? That question will make more sense in just a minute. And last, uh, what's the common theme among the secrets, the kind of secrets that you keep from other people? Are the kind of things that you could never imagine sharing with other people, opinions that you know deviate from the norm or the accepted stuff, and you know it's going to upset people, and so there's a, there's a theme or a pattern to the kind of stuff you'll never say? Is it stuff that would make you look bad? Is it, is it, is it stuff that would affect other people's approval or acceptance of you or respect for you? These are diagnostic questions that give us a little bit more traction in understanding what's happening in our hearts. And I don't know if you ask this woman, your friend, these questions, I just don't know if it would generate much clarity. I mean, I can look at these questions and maybe get a little bit further down the road of understanding, but sometimes it can just feel like, man, the wheels are turning slow. But if you asked her friends, remember week two, I said, uh, idolatry, our idols, our worship is like... B.O., everybody else can smell it, but not us. We filtered it out. We can't see it. It's so close. What would her friends say she smells like? Well, we know, we don't have to guess, we know from this passage that the other women in town did smell a stench from her. She had a humiliating reputation. And it's a bit ironic that at the end of the passage, um, after she's met Jesus, after he has freed her from this, and loved her, she goes back to the town square and she says, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. And everybody in that town is sitting there like, thanks for the news flash. Everybody and their mother knows everything you've done. She was that kind of person. Famous for all the wrong reasons. So if you asked those people, well, what's the smell? What is it for her? they probably would have said something along the spectrum. Something like, well it's men, it's marriage, it's acceptance, or it's the financial security, kind of the insurance package that marriage for a young woman in the first century in this culture was. I don't know exactly what it was. I don't know if we can tell exactly what it was. But it was something around that. What is it for you, what is it for me up until about 10 years ago, there was this well-known advice column back in the day of like actual magazines in New York Magazine. Now it's a sub stack. You got to subscribe to it. It was called Ask Polly. People, you know the deal, people would like write, write in their questions and some expert um, would give them an answer. And um, Heather is the name of the lady who was kind of the Polly who would, who would give her insights and advice about different questions that were asked. She was Answering the question from someone who wrote in talking about their struggle to get over um, guys or to get over girls, and she wrote this about herself. She said, for years I turned distracted dudes into demigods, and using only the powers of my own imagination, that was my art, my practice, putting arbitrary guys on a pedestal and then painting a rich and elaborate backdrop behind them. And then praying to that vision day after day. And as long as he wasn't a real person, he'd never ruin my vivid creations. Now, obviously that does not just apply uh, to the women in the room, but to the men in the room too. It doesn't just apply to dating or romantic relationships, but anything else under the sun that's grabbed a hold of your heart. There's nothing in those columns to suggest that Heather, the author of this, is a believer, is a Christian, but... Everybody worships. Do you hear it? Everybody worships. I fantasized, I fabricated this, this larger-than-life ideal of these demigod guys, and I prayed to that vision day after day. And you better believe those demigods cursed her too when she didn't get it. Well, with back to this woman, as is always the case with all of us, the idols that are, that are capturing her heart, it's not all her fault. You were influenced by the idols of your mom and your dad, your close friends, your country, the school that you went to. It's all in here. It somehow affected us for the harder. What affected her? She's also the victim of the men who left her. And whatever they were idolizing. Perfect marriage and easy marriage. Um, women in the first century in Israel um, didn't get to divorce their husbands. Husbands got to divorce their wives. That was their power. And they could do it for pretty much any reason. By this point in, in Jewish history, uh, there were, the loopholes were as big as Texas. I just don't like her anymore. She's not doing it for me anymore. And they could walk away. So this is a woman who has been rejected and abandoned and thrown away five times, not by a boyfriend. By a man who stood on an altar with her and promised to never leave. She's damaged goods and she knows it. But again, it's never just other people's thought, uh, idols, other people's fault. Our heart participates in that dark place too. And she's tried to medicate the pain of that rejection and that abandonment with another guy, with another man, with another marriage. And I would imagine she's not even expecting much from the next guy or much from the next marriage. Her standards are so low by this point. Anybody will do. But that's the environment that she's living in. She can't stop the cycle because it's her God. She has to have it. You can't live without a God. You can't live without your God or your idol. If that that idol is operating as your God, you can't. And one other reason why she can't is because no matter how much dysfunction that stuff is bringing into her life and her story and her relationships, it holds an authority over her. A good thing Crosses the threshold into a God thing when it begins to exercise authority over you. Orders you around. That's when something becomes a God. It rewrites the script of what's worth your time and a waste of time. Now imagine if achievement, whatever that means in your specific Context. Imagine if achievement is your God. It will rewrite the script of what is wor- truly worth your time and cannot be negotiated away. Gotta do this, gotta be here. And all the stuff that's now a waste of time. It's not important. It's not that important. It's not as important as this. See how that works? So it rewrites the script on what's worth our time, what's a waste of time. It tells us how to live our lives and who to live your life for. If pleasure has become the authority. If comfort has become the authority, it rewrites the script. You can hear, you can hear teachers say, you can read, I can read in books all I want that I was made by God and made for God. But if the authority in my life is saying, but you were made to have fun, you were made for pleasure, you were made for comfort. Well, now I'm living my life for me, and I always will. It rewrites the script on what's right and what's wrong. We get a whole new moral framework. We've all struggled in relationships, crossing boundaries, pushing boundaries, because that God and that authority of whatever it is, nakedness or intimacy or being wanted or, or securing what feels like a shaky, insecure relationship, we can pursue that and all of a sudden we're renegotiating in our minds well, where are the lines drawn? What is right? What is wrong? This, why is this such a big deal? That's the psychology of it. I know it's present in all of us. That's how this stuff happens. The authority in our lives begins to rewrite the script. How do we know it in this? Because she's not just blowing past God's law, which is for our good. Uh, she, she knew the law. There's a lot in here that Weston read. You can glance down and see it. She, This is a woman who's talking theology with God. I mean, I admire the courage. She doesn't know he's God at the time, but she's talking theology. She's talking Old Testament history. She's talking about the Messiah and her view of the Christ. Certainly she knew about God's law. She's blowing past it. She's also blowing past social customs of her day. It's almost, in fact, I'm not aware of any other place in ancient history where there's a record of a woman being married five times. She's a unicorn without equal. So she's blowing past social customs too. The script has been rewritten because she's got to have this and whatever it means to her, security or acceptance or whatever. She can't live without it. And we do this too. She's not, I mean, I said she's a unicorn, but not really. She's a, she's a picture of me. I, comprom- I make a lot of compromises to get what I really want. I blow past a lot of boundaries to get what I really want, push past a lot of limitations. I mean, scientists tell me I need eight hours of sleep, blow past that a lot. <laughs> and a lot, other, a lot of other good things that we blow past, we rationalize a lot to get our gods too. And we do weird things to hang on to our idols. We might look at this and be like, man, she's weird. I can't really relate to this. But remember, peer over her shoulder, she's you. She's me, if you're really paying attention. Um, we might look at this and be like, this is weird. Married five times. But we're all weird when you say it out loud, the stuff that we do. For example, not picking on anybody, but like you, it might just be a normal habit by now, like, Five hours of Fortnite a day might not seem weird to you, but when somebody else hears that, you're like, ugh. And it's not that long, five hours, come on, were you, would you have a timer out with me? And all of a sudden, you're getting defensive. If you're like, why are you always saying you're busy? You're not busy. That's what I'm talking about. That kind of stuff. Okay. Unfortunately, there's a little bit more going on in her heart, though, because um, as if our hearts had one little God erected up in them, right, one little God in the shrine, we're like a car factory. We got tons of makes and models coming out, not just one. So there's something else going on in her heart, and clearly we know this with, with clarity. It's the approval or the embrace, the hug of the other women in the town, Getting to be one of them, getting to be looked up to, it had become an authority in her heart. And how do we know it? Here's how. Because she couldn't be around them anymore. She could not be around them. She's adjusted her schedule all around not being seen by them by this point in her life, it's probably a subconscious habit. She's not thinking about it anymore. Well, if I go at noon, I'll be there when nobody else is there. If you'd asked her, why do you go at the hottest time of day? Why do you go at noon, you know, in a desert climate when the sun's right there and it's just blazing down at you and you've got to carry these heavy water buckets a mile and back every day, why do you always go at noon? She'd be like, well, it's just kind of when it works for my schedule. There's, there's a deeper reason, though. She goes at noon because that's the only time of day all the other women aren't there. They were there in the early mornings. They were there in the evenings gathering the water for cooking and washing and bathing. And she has a similar reason. You see how her idolatry is actually now commanding her schedule? It's commanding her daily routines, rhythms, habits. It's the same reason, I mean, various points in my life, I've gone to the gym at midnight or five in the morning so I wouldn't be seen. Maybe some of you go late at night or early in the morning because you're so tired of seeing the judgmental glances of someone that's almost saying with their eyes, why are you in here? That's not going to happen. Conversely, there's been times in my life, are there times when you go to the gym or you run on millage to be seen? Five o'clock at crunch, everybody sees me. It's gas for you. It's, it, it, it elates you. It animates you. Our idols dictate our schedules down to the particulars. It could be a similar reason, like, I mean, I've told you all before, but uh, do you find yourself bolting to the door after large group, after church, and it's not the, you know, I got to go study for a test, but it's like every week, boom, like I used to do. Is that because you're following kind of the, the routine, the habit, the schedule command of of a God of comfort that says you cannot bear to be uncomfortable or a God of acceptance that says you cannot risk not being approached and talked to. You cannot survive 60 seconds of looking around the room, which is painful. It could be a similar reason of why you stay out late so that you get home after that roommate is always in bed because there's a preference of an ease of ships passing in the night rather than the hardship of honest conversation. Do you see it? We do the things we do at the time that we do them. We have our daily habits because of worship and oftentimes because of our worship of idols. So noon is a weird time to find anybody at a well, which is also why she's so surprised to find somebody else there, especially a man. And it's why she's so startled to find a man who wants to talk to her. Most men at this day and age wouldn't have even acknowledged her. If they did, they would have lectured her. And here's a man who's asking something from her. Here's a man who asked for her help. What a humble thing to do. He's thirsty. He asked her for a cup of water a drink from the well. And he eventually gets around to asking her if she's thirsty for a drink of him. He tells her he's living water. Verse 10. Pretty pretty early on in the conversation, I mean, Jesus is cutting to the chase, and he says, if you only knew the gift God has for you and who you were talking to, you'd ask me for living water. Then in verse 13, he uses the well as a metaphor. This is no surprise to y'all by this point, a month in, but idols, men, marriage, the gods who cannot save, these gods of diminishing returns, they're just gonna make you thirstier. You drink of this well, he's clearly not just talking about coming every day to get water. You drink of those wells, you'll be thirsty again. All right, seems like a gentle and a kind diagnosis. Jesus could have said that a lot harsher in a much more degrading way undignified way that just smeared her into the ground. But he simply says, if you drink of that water, you'll be thirsty again. Kind of understated. And he says, oh, if you knew who I was, you'd ask me for living water. So he doesn't just say, they'll never quench you, but he says that deep divine thirst that's in you, that was my idea. I hardwired it into you when I made you and I put it into every other man and woman when I made them, a homing beacon for me. So she responds and it's pretty evident right off the bat that she has no clue what he's talking about, right? Did you pick that up? Uh, It's going right over her head. When you're spiritually dead, which is the natural state of a human being when we are born physically, lights out to God, hearts closed off to God, hearts that are uh, attracted to and impressed by everything he made, but never impressed with him. We know there's a God, but we don't like him. That's the natural state of a human heart, or so says God in scripture. Um, When we're spiritually dead, We lack, it's what Alex prayed for earlier. We cannot see. We do not have eyes to see truly. We do not have ears to hear truly. We do not have a heart to believe. Ezekiel 36, a couple of weeks ago, we we looked at it and God says, "Here's, here's this good news. I'm going to take out that heart of stone, which presumes we were born with marble hearts. As dead as dead gets. This is scary stuff because this means you can literally be sitting six feet away from God and have no clue who you're talking to. John 1 through 5, we didn't print it in the bulletin for the sake of space, but uh, Jesus is going through Samaria because the Pharisees are trying to track him down and arrest him. Men who stood nose to nose, men who knew their Bibles backwards and forwards, stood nose to nose with God in the flesh and thought he was a heretic. When you don't have eyes, you're as blind as blind gets. Um, God could be standing right here and you cannot see him. And that's what's going on um, in this woman, our friend. You can hear all these messages, all these sermons, you can read all the books you want about idols, about diagnosing your heart, and it will never affect you in some kind of a lasting or deep way. It'll just be a surface level impact at the most. I just want to pause and say, is that you? If it's you, I want you to take special note that the story does not stop here. Jesus doesn't like hit her over the head with something and be like, what's going on with you? Hello, anybody home? For her, her spiritual blindness is a deal breaker. For God, it's a setup. It's putting the baseball on the tee for him to knock out of the park. Are you blind? Have you been sitting in here for years and nothing has ever gotten in? Have you never heard the affirming, the holy, the unsettling voice of the true and living God? You're allowed to ask that question if God is alive. It's scary, but you're allowed to ask it if he's alive and if he heals the blind but she has no clue what he's talking about in her current state all she's able to glean from this prophet she's like okay i can tell that you know i can tell you've been to seminary i can tell you're special you're a prophet you're a counselor she asks she's interested in a quick fix to a deep problem a quick solution to the consequences of her idolatry these gods who cannot save leave us high and dry every time they ruin our lives they bring a ton of chaos into our lives they deceive us And she hears him talking about living water to where she won't have to come back to the well every day. And she hears in her mind, in her blindness, in her hardness of heart, she hears, oh. Like there's some like indoor plumbing device that I don't have to come and every day face the fact that I'm damaged goods, that nobody wants me, that my best days are all behind me. I don't have to see the other women's eyes when they look at me. I can stay home. Sir, please give me this water. Have you ever cried out to God to merely heal the consequences of our false worship, but not to uproot the root of the false worship? I have. Everybody in the room has. And if you have, thankfully Jesus has much bigger answers to those prayers than simply temporary relief. He's going to uproot these gods that cannot save her and he's going to give her the one God who can and he'll do the same with you. No change will happen in her and no change will happen in me or you until you see Jesus as he actually is. Hear this. You cannot want Jesus until you see Jesus. You cannot actually truly want Jesus until you actually truly see Jesus. We're five weeks into a series on idolatry and we have yet to talk about the Ten Commandments. First commandment, you shall have no other God before me. The second commandment, you shall make no graven image of anything. Another form of idolatry is, it's not just kind of turning created things into gods. It's distorting the true and living God. It's diminishing him. It's refabricating him in our own image. Only the real Jesus can save JV Jesus can't do you any help. Amateur hour Jesus can't do you any help. American Jesus can't do you any help. Evangelical sub-Christian culture Jesus, emotional pick-me-up Jesus, cannot and will not save you. And that's an idol that we probably all are deeply attracted to as well. A distorted and diminished God cannot save you and will not save you. So the question is, are you sure that you're seeing and dealing with actual, real Jesus? Some of you might have heard this story. There's a pretty famous podcast called Boomer and Geo. Yesterday, um, on the live show, they, uh, were, um, they had really excited. They got Randy Moss, who's kind of a legendary uh, wide receiver, and Super Bowl is this coming Monday. And so they had landed this huge guest, celebrity guest, to come and give commentary on what he thinks is going to happen in the game. And they were just like, how did we get that big of a celebrity to come and, and be on our show? And so they're doing the lead up to him. He's about five minutes away from kind of coming on the show. They're doing the lead up of introducing him. And one of the hosts asked the show's producer, who's in studio talking with them, um, he says, okay, so, uh, what is Moss promoting? You know, Jimmy Fallon, Jimmy Kimmel's show, whenever these celebrities come on shows, they're pushing or promoting something. Here's a podcast. Here's a show. Here's a book. Hey, everyone go buy it. So he's like, okay, what's he promoting? And the producer goes, um, well, he's really into horses. Like, he really, really wants to talk about horses. Uh, but I told him, it's a Super Bowl show. We're talking about the Super Bowl, so you can talk about the horses stuff, but the point of the show is Super Bowl. So he's like, Okay. Um, and the, and the and the host goes um horses and he goes are you sure this is the right Randy Moss and the producer kind of thinks it's a joke and he goes is there another Randy Moss so right there live on the show you can watch the video of it on YouTube the producer is going through his text thread thread with that he's been in with Randy Moss's agent And he had asked his agent, or the agent had asked this producer, hey, do you all need us to send in a headshot and a bio? And the producer was like, no. Everybody knows who Randy Moss is. All of us know who he is. So he never double-checked. Well, it turns out there is another Randy Moss. I don't know if the picture of the actual Randy Moss came up. That's actual wide receiver Randy Moss. Uh, Next picture, this is the Randy Moss that they booked in the middle there who is an NBC analyst for horse races. (laughs) The producer assumed there was just one Randy Moss out there and so in all of his interactions he assumed he was dealing with the Randy Moss. But it turns out there's a lot of Randy Mosses and only one of them is interesting (laughs) and an NFL legend or has helpful things to say about the Super Bowl. So my question to us tonight is, do you think there's just one Jesus? If you do, you have probably assumed that you're dealing with the Jesus. But how do you know you're dealing with the Jesus and not a Jesus? What if you're dealing with a distorted, diminished, self-made, self-fabricated Jesus? There's hundreds of those Jesuses going around. There's so many. This guy made a book. This is the cover of the book. Uh, Jesus Made in America. And he catalogs from the founding fathers to this present day the different versions of Jesus that American Christians have worshipped. None of them can save you. JV Jesus is another God who cannot save. Another idol that is powerless. Powerless. And all those other Jesuses would not save you. They wouldn't have anything to do with a person like me or a person like you, and especially a person like this sitting at the well, this woman. Where am I getting all of this from the passage? This woman had ideas about God. She had, every, she had, she had ideas about what God was like. She even had ideas about what the Christ, what the Messiah was like. Verse 20 this is what her faith is. It's vague, it's superstitious, it's faith in, an un, in a distant, uninvolved God. It's the God of the philosopher's debate that, that y'all sit up till three in the morning discussing in existential conversations. But it is not a God that heartbroken, damaged goods like her would ever expect to find her in the middle of a day in a region God never should have been To quench her thirst and heal her heart and set her free. She had a view of Jesus, verse 25 I know the Messiah is coming, the one who's called the Christ, and when he comes, he will explain everything to us. She thought she already knew Jesus. Do you know a Jesus whose main purpose in coming is to explain stuff to you? To teach you, to show you how to beat your idols? Some of you have really been wanting for the past four or five weeks techniques to beat your idols. Do you think that's what Jesus came to do? The actual Jesus, the true Jesus, the real Jesus, didn't come to explain simply our idolatry or show us how to get out of it, but he came to pursue and to seek idolaters. The Father is seeking worshipers such as these. Does this fit your bill for who God is after? For who he walks long roads to get? To show them who he really is? The actual Jesus came to break down and cross boundaries. He's in Samaria. A Jew never would have gone there. He's talking to a woman. A rabbi never would have talked to a woman in this day and age. God is a God who crosses boundaries to chase down and gather in those who cross boundaries to get to their idols. That's who he really is. He did not come to explain how to get out of your idolatry. He came to exhaustively accomplish your deliverance from your idols, to liberate you, and to quench your thirst. So, spoiler alert. Jesus showing you who he actually and really is, Jesus showing you, not just telling you, Jesus showing you and telling you who he really is, is how he uproots idols in your heart. How do you participate? You actually pay attention because he is talking in his word. He is describing himself, he is introducing himself, he is showing himself to you. Will you persist with wherever you got what you think about him? American Jesus, Evangelical Jesus? Or will you let him introduce himself to you again? We also participate in in letting Jesus show us who he really is by ruthlessly evicting all the pretender Jesuses. JV Jesus has got to go. A breakup has got to happen, and probably tonight. If you have trouble seeing God as beautiful, you have not seen him. And we can start tonight to evict these amateurs and to pray to the real one to come and show us who he really is. I want to end in a very practical place, so two examples of the mythical JV Jesuses that we are probably drawn to. I just want to name this, and we're done. This is all from Ray Ortland, not from me. He said the two main pretender Jesuses that we are probably drawn to in 2024 is first, feel-good Jesus. He always smiles, always approves, never disagrees. He's just grateful when you show up to church now and then. During your week, no matter what you do, you can always count on feel good Jesus to tell you it's gonna be okay and everybody goes to heaven because everybody's basically good at heart. This warped view of Jesus is perfect conditions for a Mount Olympus of idols in your life. Why? Why? Feel good Jesus is so small and so impotent and so polite. He'd never mess with your idols. He just finances them. He'd never be beautiful enough to draw you away. What about feel bad Jesus? Ortland goes on and he says, At least this Jesus is more serious than Jesus Jr. But this tough guy is always pointing out your shortcomings. Imagine that Jesus with this woman at the well. Imagine the lecture. He's always pointing out your shortcomings. Your best is never good enough for him. This harsh Jesus, he's so disappointed with you. He rolls his eyes with a really? You did it again? But feel bad Jesus just doesn't have a stick to beat you up with. He also offers a carrot. If you'll just try harder, you might make the cut. Stay out of hell. So, put your mind to it and you can stand above other sinners. I love this line. And he might even let you put on a robe and sing in his choir up in the clouds forever, which is the best version of heaven that he has to offer. You see how pathetic those Jesuses are? No wonder we're so attracted to everything but him. He's not worthy of your attention, he's not worthy of my worship. But what if the one revealed in the scriptures through his word, by his spirit, who can get through to you, who will meet with you and talk with you and untangle the misconceptions of him, what if he is fundamentally different? What if he, when you see him as he is, will win the beauty contest every time? And instead of going home with the idol again who you thought was more beautiful, you go home with him. Our prayer tonight and your work and my work it's to wrestle with our hearts and to pray for eyes if you don't have them and ears if you don't have them and a heart if you don't have it to this Jesus. And it's to ruthlessly evict the JV squad.